0: Heavenly Father, quiet our souls. Bring us to our knees. Lord, rid me of myself because we belong to you. We ask that you bring us to your cross this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. A couple years ago, Rolling Stone magazine asked its readers to vote on the best one hit wonders of all time here they are you can see how many of them you know unfortunately i knew all of them maybe that means i might be a little old i don't know number one was not in chronological order but the first one they listed was tub thumping by chumbawumba from back in 1997 (laughs) 1993 no rain by blind Melon. 1979 getting a little for the older people in the room my sharona by the knack 1981 tainted love by soft cell 1969 going really back for some of you older people spirit in the sky by norman greenbaum 1982 come on eileen from dexie's midnight runners and the number one voted song one hit wonder by the readers of Rolling Stone Magazine from 1984, Take On Me by AHA. I kept waiting for the Macarena. Thank goodness nobody voted for that. Today, we're going to start a new series on the one-hit wonders of the Bible. And here's what I mean by that. There are five books in the Bible that consist of only one chapter. But that one chapter, that one hit, as it may be, was so good, it was so important, so full of significance, that even that one single solitary chapter was given a title and was included among the Bible's 66 books. So we're going to take the next five weeks and we're going to look at each of those books. And each week, a new hit, each time, trying to pull out of that book what that single chapter was why it was so important to be included in the Bible and maybe just maybe what it was what made that one hit wonder a wonder and what it might mean for us so let's get started with the only one of these one hit wonders found in the Old Testament titled Obadiah a prophetic book titled after the prophet who wrote it and to understand obadiah what he and what he writes we really must understand a bit of the historical setting of his writing see the key to understanding the writings of any of the prophets is knowing what was going on in that time where they wrote it see they were sent to prophesy for a reason so we have to know what was going on so let me see if i can kind of give you the big picture And to do that, we have to go all the way back to the great Jewish leader, Moses, whose life is detailed in the first books of the Bible. And Moses led the Jewish people out of slavery in Egypt and into the land that God had promised them, aptly named the Promised Land. And then Moses handed over the leadership baton to a man named Joshua, who led the people to actually possess that Promised Land. And then they were ruled by various judges until the time that they appointed their very first king, a man by the name of Saul, who was followed by one of the greatest kings, one of the greatest leaders of all time in all of human history, King David. See, David started off by winning that battle against the giant, Goliath, and then ended up establishing Israel as the premier force in that part of the world. David had a son named Solomon, who made his own mark through his incredible God given wisdom. In fact, he's known as the wisest man to have ever lived. And through that wisdom, Solomon built off of his father's David's success and led Israel to such military, such economic prominence, that kings and queens from all over the world would come to visit to marvel and to learn now the the reigns of david and then of solomon constituted what we could call the golden age of israel but when solomon died his son rehoboam comes to the throne and he was only to be the fourth king in the history history of israel he inherited the normal challenges that come with a growing nation the need for money To fuel the growth and the need for workers to build out that infrastructure but those are the kind of challenges that a leader longs for for they are the challenges that can often lead to success so Rehoboam comes to the throne David's grandson Solomon's son standing in the line of kings ready to lead Israel forward to even greater heights And then, in a single event, he screwed it all up, and everything was lost. See, here's here's what happened. The people come to install Rehoboam as their new king, ready to move forward under his leadership. They made one request, and they asked it with as much respect as they could muster. Due to the rapid expansion of the nation, they had been heavily taxed. And large numbers of workers had been forced into labor. They asked, could he, as the new king, inaugurate his reign through an act of kindness, through an act of compassion and sensitivity, and consider lowering taxes just a bit and reducing the amount of forced labor just a bit? And even if it's just for a short season, they asked that, simple request. It was an incredible opportunity for Rehoboam as a new king to curry favor, to win the loyalty of his people. But he refused. His response was, oh, you want lower taxes? You want less work? Well, I'm going to raise your taxes, and I'm going to work you even harder. And that led most of the people to their breaking point. Civil war breaks out, and the kingdom divides. Ten of the twelve tribes of Israel revolted and eventually forms the northern kingdom of Israel. Only two of those twelve tribes would remain loyal to Rehoboam, forming the southern kingdom of Judah. See, this led to ever-increasing levels of political, cultural, and spiritual breakdown in both the north and the south ushering in the prophetic era where God would send prophet after prophet to call the people back to political, cultural, and spiritual sanity. Unfortunately, the breakdown was so bad that, by and large, the words of those prophets fell on deaf ears. And this led to prophetic calls of repentance then becoming prophetic declarations of doom. A 350-year decline was set in motion, culminating in the exile of both the northern and the southern kingdoms. The north fell to the Assyrians in 722 BC, the south to the Babylonians in 586 BC. The northern kingdom was lost forever, and only a remnant of the southern kingdom was able to return from their exile in babylon to the promised land to re-establish the jewish homeland and then to wait for the promised messiah and that in effect ends the history of the old testament the story of the bible doesn't really pick back up again until the time of the coming messiah chronicled for us in the new testament so that's that's the setting That's the season that we're in when we're talking about the prophets, a divided kingdom. Exile looming, moving from calls of repentance to declarations of judgment. And as you can imagine, it was not a very fun time. Obadiah was appointed right after the invasion of the southern kingdom and the destruction of Jerusalem. He was among the last of the prophets. So with, with that history out of the way, what exactly do we mean when we say that someone is a prophet? We tend to think of a prophet as, as someone who prophesied the future, kind of like a fortune teller. Well, the, they did some of that, but that's not really what the meaning of the word is. A prophet was someone who was a mouthpiece for God to speak to the people. Their job was more about bringing the word of God to bear upon human life, to proclaim the will of God in light of a particular situation. And most of the time, they were bearers of warning and judgment sent by God because the people wouldn't listen to God in any other way. God spoke to and through the prophets in all kinds of ways. He used dreams, he used visions, he used signs, he used symbols. But no matter how the message of God came to the prophets, it was God's message. It was binding, it was authoritative, and no prophet was self-appointed. God appointed them, set them apart uniquely for the task at hand, and which is why you, we also read of false Prophets, Those who would self-appoint themselves, who would prophesy their own words and not God's. But a true prophet was God's spokesperson, God putting things into their mouth, God setting them apart, God telling them what to say. And this is why only a prophet could say, thus saith the Lord. See, they tended to have the same three-part message. Number one, that if the people didn't repent, if they didn't turn from their evil ways, that they would be taken captive, they would face exile, or even worse, destruction. And then number two, that the Messiah was coming. And then number three, finally, that when the Messiah came, the people of God would be restored, brought together and renewed, they would be And of course, all three of those happened. The people didn't repent, so they went into exile. The Messiah did come in the person of Jesus Christ, and Jesus did provide the way for people who wanted to be connected to God, to come together to be saved. They were direct prophecies. But most of what we read is a direct moral confrontation. And that's what we'll find in the book of Obadiah. It's textbook prophetic writing. It's what he had to say. His entire prophetic book is only 21 verses long. But man, do they thunder. Before we look at those words in themselves, let me talk a little bit about Obadiah himself. Here's what we know about him. Okay, moving on to what he wrote because really, we don't really know much of anything about Obadiah except for what he wrote. His name, Obadiah, was a very common name for the day. It meant servant of the Lord. In fact, it was so common of a name that we read of other people named Obadiah in the Bible, but we have no idea if any of those are the Obadiah that wrote this book. We don't know the name of his father. We don't even know where he was born. But we do know what he wrote this one-hit wonder about. He wrote it about the nation and the people of Edom, who, while priding themselves on their own safety and security because they lived high up in the hills and in the rocks and in the caves, that, that they felt protected. And they had been gloating over the devastation that the Israelites had been subjected to by foreign powers so while they prided themselves for being safe they loved watching israel get destroyed sometimes they even joined in the attacks on israel and what made that even more reprehensible is that the edomites were related to the israelites they were kin. They were the descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob, one of the great patriarchs of, for the Jewish people. And this had gone on for centuries. In fact, the prophecy that Obadiah gives is pretty simple. This is the summation of it. It is you, Edom, that will be destroyed. Israel will be delivered, and God's kingdom will triumph. So as we dig into this prophecy, it will give us a chance to reflect on some very important things for our own thinking about God. So let's let's walk through it. This is the vision that the Sovereign Lord revealed to Obadiah concerning the land of Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord that an ambassador was sent to the nations to say, get ready, everyone. Let's assemble our armies and attack Edom. The Lord says to Edom, I will cut you down to size. Among the nations, you will be greatly despised. You have been deceived by your own pride because you live in a rock fortress and make your home high in the mountains. Who can ever reach us? Way up here, you ask boastfully. But even if you soar as high as eagles and build your nest among the stars, I will bring you crashing down, says the Lord. If thieves came at night and robbed you, what a disaster awaits you. They would not take everything. Those who harvest grapes always leave a few for the poor. But your enemies will wipe you out completely. Every nook and cranny of Edom will be searched and looted. Every treasure will be found and taken. All of your allies will turn against you. They will help to chase you from the land. They will will promise you peace while plotting to deceive and destroy you. Your trusted friends will set traps for you, and you won't even know about it. And at that time, not a single wise person will be left in the whole land of Edom, says the Lord. For on the mountains of Edom, I will destroy everyone who has understanding. The mightiest warriors of Teman will be terrified, and everyone on the mountains of Edom will be cut down. A bit harsh, isn't it? kind of hard to hear that especially if you live in edom now i know that we don't like wrath of god type of stuff we like hearing about the god who loves us who forgives us who accepts us the god who's tender and compassionate and all of those things are true about god but god is also holy he is also just He's not some kind of cosmic Santa Claus. He is kind of like fire. I've heard it said that the fire that warms us can also be the fire that burns us. See, it all depends where you stand in relation to the fire. There can come a time when that fire burns, when God's justice, his punishment comes. And Edom wasn't the first to experience it. One of the more famed examples was the punishment of the people of Canaan because of their ferocious, habitual, unrepentant, off-the-charts evil. Just sampling of it, the Canaanites were marked by the worst possible aspects of slavery, the worship of false gods, religious prostitution, sexual cults. They had given themselves over to every kind of sexual depravity. The Bible says that God had been tolerating this for more than 400 years. Their wickedness kept increasing and increasing, and God kept enduring it. 400 years of restraint and patience. But why? Because no matter what you've heard, this kind of judgment is always God's last Resort. But the wickedness reached a point where Scripture talks about that God just couldn't stomach it any longer. So while the punishment like this is rare in the Bible, what stands out is not God's act of justice, but how much he's marked by mercy and restraint. See, there comes a time when God determines that there is no other recourse but divine judgment. A time when God's anger can't help but surface. Now let's think about that for a moment. I don't know what kind of God you want in your life. I mean, here's the God that you have in the Bible, the God of the Christian faith. Here's a God who loves us fiercely, but he's also angry with evil, at war with evil. He's furious at evil he has love and forgiveness and grace for for my evil for all the evil that i do when i come to him in a relationship and ask for forgiveness and offer my cooperation to the work of the holy spirit to make me more like jesus but that god who loves me and forgives me and with whom i'm in a relationship with will not be trifled with, will not be mocked. He can be counted on for justice, for righteousness and goodness and holiness and truth. Now, I don't know about you, but but that's the kind of God that I want. See, God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because he is love. That's exactly what's going on here. This long-deserved, long-restrained, righteous judgment against Edom. And Obadiah then spells out why that's the case. Because of the violence you did to your close relatives in Egypt, you will be filled with shame and destroyed forever. When they were invaded, you stood aloof. "'Refusing to help them, foreign invaders carried off their wealth "'and cast lots to divide up Jerusalem, "'but you acted like one of Israel's enemies. "'You should not have gloated when they exiled your relatives to distant lands. "'You should not have rejoiced when the people of Judah suffered such misfortune. "'You should not have spoken arrogantly in that terrible time of trouble.'" You should not have plundered the land of Israel when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have gloated over their destruction when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have seized their wealth when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads killing those who tried to escape. You should not have captured the survivors and handed them over in their terrible time of trouble. So that's what God has done with. Violence, theft, murder, betrayal, arrogance, spite, and disrespect toward him as the God of Israel. Daring God to to react, daring him to respond, defying him to have his justice roll down. See, it wasn't just the horrible actions that Edom took, but the horrible inactions that they also took. It wasn't simply what they did, horrific as that was, but also what they didn't do. When they stood by and did nothing, while the people of Israel were being violated, they did nothing when they could have done everything. See, there are sins of commission, and there are sins of omission. We can't forget that one can be just as bad as the other. For sins of both kinds, egregious, horrific sins of both commission and omission, Edom had brought themselves to God's breaking point. Which then leads to the final part of Obadiah's prophecy after prophesying Edom's destruction and then outlying what Edom had done to deserve it, Obadiah lays out exactly what will happen next. Edom will be destroyed and Israel will be restored. Here are his words. The day is near when I, the Lord, will judge all godless nations as you have done to israel so it will be done to you all your evil deeds will fall back on your own heads just as you swallowed up my people on my holy mountain so you and the surrounding nations will swallow the punishment i pour out on you yes all you nations will drink and stagger and disappear from history but jerusalem will become a refuge for those who escape it will be a holy place and the people of israel will come back to reclaim their inheritance the people of israel will be a raging fire and edom a field of dry stubble the descendants of joseph will be a flame roaring across the field devouring everything there will be no survivors in Edom. I, the Lord, have spoken, then my people living in the Negev will occupy the mountains of Edom. Those living in the foothills of Judah will possess the Philistine plains and take over the fields of Ephraim and Samaria. And the people of Benjamin will occupy the land of Gilead. The exiles of Israel will return to their land and occupy the Phoenician coast as far north as Zarephath. The captives from Jerusalem, exiled in the north, will return home and resettle the towns of the Negev. Those who have been rescued will go up to Mount Zion in Jerusalem to rule over the mountains of Edom. And the Lord himself will be king historical footnote for you here the kingdom of edom was in fact destroyed in 553 bc now we're not exactly sure how or by whom but we do know through archaeology that the signs of destruction by at least something that included fire from that time have been found all of that edom's destruction israel's restoration is a picture of god's economy and it's called justice god is a just god and he will bring justice to bear on his creation and justice that results in what is known as shalom see it's a beautiful dynamic where god wants to extend mercy and grace and forgiveness repeatedly but if we say no then justice must come there could have been mercy There could have been grace. There could have been forgiveness. But Edom said no. But when justice comes the right way, there can be shalom. Shalom is a powerful Jewish word often used in a greeting or in a farewell. It's commonly understood to mean peace, health, or prosperity. But but it's deeper than that. Shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all of creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. Think about that. It's when humans and God and all of creation so act in concert together that justice breaks out, peace breaks out, wholeness breaks out, and love breaks out. And for it to break out means dealing with all that kept it chained up and tied down. Which is why that last line is so captivating. Let me read it again. And the Lord himself will be king. See, that's the end game. That's what we all have to look forward to. That's the vision God is casting through Obadiah. That evil will not have the last word. God will. And that's the vision behind everything that we face in this world. Now I have no idea what you walked in here today carrying on your shoulders, what may be weighing you down. But for everything that you're facing, pain is not the last word. Cancer is not the last word. Unemployment, poverty, hunger, they are not the last words. Loneliness is not the last word. Rejection, abandonment, divorce, they are not the last words. Persecution is not the last word. Racism, sexism, abuse, not the last words. Not even death is the last word. God on his throne is the last word and that word will be with us throughout all of eternity See, for the idea which that obadiah ends with that god inspired him through a vision to prophetically proclaim is still to be fulfilled see this is our vision as much as it was theirs and it is to be echoed through another prophet and through another vision this one at the very end of time from the prophet john in the book of revelation where he says this then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices shouting in heaven the world has now become the kingdom of our lord and of his christ and he will reign forever and ever so take obadiah to heart the way the israelites would have because this is who the prophecy actually went to see this it would not have been something declared to the edomites it's something that was declared to the israelites the edomites would have known nothing about this prophecy the words given to obadiah they didn't even share the same language So don't picture this particular prophecy as Obadiah strolling into Edom, standing on his soapbox in the town square and reading aloud a judgment. No, this was given to the Israelites to encourage them, to let them know that God was not going to abandon them, that they had a God who wouldn't stand for this much longer. That they had a good and a strong and a just God. And that's why God wants you to know about Obadiah. Because he wants to make this known to you. He's still prophesying this to you. This is a God that you can trust to establish his kingdom. A God that will be on your side. A God that's watching out for you in the face of cruelty and injustice, wrongdoing, and evil. A God who will have the final word and who will one day be on his throne for all to see. But be sobered by this too, because we too are in a time that may quickly be ending. A time when God is once again withholding justice and showing justice. Restraint. He's still giving time for any and all to turn back to Him, to come to Him, to be in a relationship with Him, but it will not last forever. His restraint won't last forever. There will come a time when God will bring ultimate and final and right and proper judgment on this world. And all who have lived, who are living and will live and it will be good and it will be right see and from that some of us can take comfort and some of us can hear a challenge see the fire that warms is also the fire that can burn god wants nothing but to wrap you in a warm and a loving embrace and to ambush you with forgiveness and grace. But if you tell him no, if you tell him no, then that just means judgment that you have now invited onto yourself. And it can be that. It can be that, or it can be shalom. It can be peace for all of eternity. Today, if you want that peace in your life, well, I pray, will you just raise your hand where you're at? Heavenly Father, you are worthy. You are so worthy of all of our praise. And we live for you. Your name is above every other name, Lord. We lift you up. We thank you for all that you do for us. And we pray for that shalom that only you can give.